Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. To find out more about solar and energy storage, go to solarsean.com. The title of this podcast is going to be Grounded versus Ungrounded Inverters, Battery Combiner Boxes, and Community Solar. In this podcast, we will once again cover questions from you and those like you by popular demand. We will get into different terminology and how it changed in different versions of the National Electrical Code. When we talk about ungrounded inverters, grounded inverters, functionally grounded inverters, all kinds of inverters. Then we will talk about the correct terminology to use when combining batteries in parallel, not like battery combiner box, and we will differentiate between community solar and community choice aggregation, among other things as we get into the community of community solar. So that's right, remember, go to solarshawn.com and check this out. Check out this podcast, listen up. So our first question is gonna be about grounded versus ungrounded inverters. And so let me say one more thing about that too. Way back in the 2014 National Electrical Code and previous to that, we had these different terms for inverters which we called grounded and ungrounded inverters. Then in the 2017 National Electrical Code, and that means also versions after that, we changed the words. And so now they are all called functionally grounded inverters. Isn't that functional? But let's just talk about what the difference between these inverters are. Even though they're both called functionally grounded inverters, they are still going to be called grounded and ungrounded inverters in many circles. Now, most inverters that people are using these days are the ones that were formerly known as ungrounded inverters. The only exception to that might be some large utility scale inverters still being grounded inverters. And so these grounded inverters, which were the main type of inverter way back in the day, say maybe 10, 15 years ago, and before that, most inverters were grounded inverters. And that was a type of grounding that I like to call fuse grounded. So these fuse grounded inverters, what they did is they did some system grounding that's on the DC side of the inverter and they would connect usually the negative but sometimes the positive conductor coming from the array to the grounding bus through a fuse in the inverter and then if enough current went through a fuse that was a very clever way of determining that there was a ground fault very clever but maybe not sensitive enough and so these ungrounded inverters they have different ways of detecting ground faults and what they do is a couple of things. First of all, they will do an insulation test on the wire. That's also known as a mega test in the morning as they wake up. And that is super sensitive at finding ground faults. And we're talking like 1000 times more sensitive at finding ground faults. We're talking that they are so sensitive at finding ground faults, these new, formerly known as ungrounded inverters. Maybe they're not so new. But these inverters were very, very sensitive at finding ground faults. Some people say they're too sensitive because if you replace an old grounded inverter with a newer ungrounded inverter, we're using the old terms here now, and that's okay. But a lot of times when people are replacing these older inverters with these newer inverters, they can't get them to turn on because it's showing ground fault, ground fault, ground fault. One of the easier ways to deal with that problem might be programming the inverter to be a little bit less sensitive or be a genius and go find out what's causing all those ground faults. You might have to rewire your system though. 
And so let's sum it up again. The formerly known as grounded inverters, that's the old style inverter. You can't even buy one for your house anymore because they just don't make them. Well, maybe you could get one on eBay. And then the newer inverters, they used to call these newer inverters transformerless inverters or ungrounded inverters. Those ones are more properly called these days non-isolated inverters, but they're all called functionally grounded inverters. Now, onward with the question, now that we summed all that up. The question is, I heard that overcurrent protection devices, or you can say OCPDs, are no longer required for ungrounded systems, which reminded me of a conversation I had with one of my guys regarding grounded versus ungrounded systems. He was basically wondering what, if any pros and cons, there are to having one versus the other. What dictates needing one or the other? I didn't really have a great answer for him because I haven't really put much thought into it until he brought it up. Ha <laughs> ha. And I'm reading ha ha. I'd like to give him a better answer. What are your thoughts on this? Any good articles out there that you recommend for this topic? And that question, by the way, came from Dave. So Dave, ungrounded inverters are at least 1,000 times more sensitive at detecting ground faults than grounded inverters, as we stated before we opened up here. The only place that you will find new grounded inverters these days are with large central inverters on giant utility scale projects. Fuses are still required for ungrounded inverters. However, since the 2017 National Electrical Code, they're only required on one polarity. So get that, before the 2017 National Electrical Code, grounded inverters would have fuses only on one polarity, and that would be the ungrounded conductor. And ungrounded inverters would have fuses on both polarities. But now, after the 2017 National Electrical Code, with both types of inverters, that's grounded inverters and ungrounded inverters, we only need overcurrent protection on one single polarity. And the reason that they did this was for you O&M people out there. So when you swap out an older inverter, say a grounded inverter for a newer inverter, say an ungrounded inverter, that you don't have to go rewire the system. So what you can do is just swap it out and you can just leave overcurrent protection on one single polarity. How convenient. Another thing that you don't have to do after the 2017 National Electrical Code was previously ungrounded inverters were required to have PV wire, whereas grounded inverters could have PV wire or USE2 wire. So now, after the 2017 National Electrical Code and the 2020 NEC, you can have USE2 wire or PV wire on ungrounded inverters or any kind of inverter. And we're talking about usually the conductors that are up in the array and free air. That's where you have USE2 and PV wire. So if you are in one of those places that's still on the 2014 National Electrical Code and sooner, and you swapped out a grounded inverter for an ungrounded inverter, you might have some inspector that was correctly telling you that you would have to make sure that you're using PV wire and not USE2 wire. That would be a pain and hopefully the inspector would be understanding and let you go with the 2017 or 2020 NEC on that one. Or heck, just tell them you're using the 2023 NEC. However, as of this podcast, the 2023 NEC has not came out yet. But still, with both of these inverters, if you have two strings or less being combined, you do not need overcurrent protection of any kind. This is why many string inverters have two strings per MPP, that's maximum PowerPoint tracker. And the reason that they have two strings per MPP, oftentimes, is because you do not need any fuses. Another good thing about two strings per MPP is if there's a problem on one string, you might be getting half power, 
And you would definitely notice that with the monitoring. So typically you'll have these string inverters. That means strings connect to your inverters. Two strings per MPP, no fuses. And if it shows half power, maybe one of those strings got disconnected somehow. And then your O&M guys have to go plug them back in. Figure out what's wrong. Find that rodent that chewed that string apart. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Oh, back to business. So if you want to find out more about all this terminology changing and all that, one of the things that you can do is read about it in my books, either PV and the NEC. We have a 2017 and 2020 version of that. I wrote that with Bill Brooks, who you all know probably because he is famous. Or my other book, PV Engineering and Installation, which a lot of people use along with my heat spring classes to pass NABCEP exams. And you can find out all about that stuff at solarsean.com. So if you wanted to find some articles on grounded inverters, you can go to your search engine or search around Solar ABCS, that's Solar America Board of Codes and Standards, solarabcs.org. And they have some different publications. So you could just do the Google search for S-O-L-A-R-A-B-C-S and then write grounding or system grounding or grounded inverters. And also a really good interesting one too is blind spot. So do another solar ABCS search for the blind spot and you can find out one of the reasons why we are not using these old style grounded inverters because they are not as sensitive at detecting ground faults and they are also more expensive to make because they have transformers in them. But some of these older systems out there are getting retrofitted to be safer. So stay safe, be grounded. I mean, ungrounded or should we say functionally grounded? Yeah, that's right. Stay safe and be functionally grounded, especially if you're from a dysfunctional family. Next question, please. Now, this question is a question that is titled PV Battery Combiner Box. Now, what is that? Is there a such thing? So the question reads from Douglas. He says, not sure if this has been asked yet, but is there anything in the NEC regarding combiner boxes, like for a battery to an inverter? I think the lead acid charge controllers are going to make a huge impact in the DIY community. Or should I just assume a charge controller and a combiner box are the same thing? Thanks again. Hmm. How do we answer that one? Let's give it a shot. Well, if you are connecting PV to batteries, you typically need a charge controller in between rather than a combiner box. So a combiner box is something that goes between PV source circuits, that's strings of PV modules, and an inverter. These days with a combiner box, it's officially called a DC combiner in the National Electrical Code. It's in Article 690. So it does not have anything to do with batteries as far as the NEC goes. And it's not even called a combiner box. But what you're doing there is you are combining circuits together with this officially called DC combiner. And usually you're only seeing this these days with large, big, huge inverters because with smaller inverters, you're usually just bringing all your strings to the inverter, hence the name string inverter, or you're just bringing your PV modules right to a microinverter. Another thing too is there's these things called DC to DC converters that most people call optimizers, and you can have those with a DC combiner too, but that's not something that you see a lot of because typically, when you're using these DC to DC converters, you're just bringing those circuits, that's the DC to DC converter source circuit, which connects all the optimizers together. You're usually just bringing them right to the inverter. So it's like a string inverter. 
And so if you are going to have a battery system, a lot of times you do have combiners. This is one exception to instead of big, giant, huge inverters, sometimes with these people living off grid, they are limited by the voltage. So a lot of times off grid people have voltages that are very low compared to what most people have. So on a residential building, your maximum voltage could be 600 volts. And a one and two family dwelling, your voltage can go up to 600 volts. On other buildings, you can go up to 1000 volts. And for ground mounts, you can go up to 1500 volts. Now, if you're doing an off grid system, sometimes people have 12 volt, 24 volt, 48 volt systems. Sometimes, and a lot of times too, there's a lot of charge controllers that go up to 150 volts. So let's talk about these 150 volt PV input charge controllers. They're maximum power point tracking charge controllers, which means they have an effect, a DC to DC converter, which is like a transformer for DC built into the charge controller. So on the PV side, the maximum voltage would be oftentimes 150 volts. And then on the output side of the charge controller, which would be the voltage for the batteries and the inverter, that oftentimes might be 12, 24, or 48 volts. So let's call it 24. So we're going from 150 maximum, that's the super cold temperature that you have there. So a lot of times what's happening, what people are doing is they are putting three modules in series to stay under 150 volts on a cold day. Then if they wanted to have, let's say nine PV modules or 12 PV modules, three goes into nine three times, three goes into 12 four times. So if you have four sets of three, then you do get a combiner box for these off-grid systems and still a lot of people are using lead-acid batteries for these systems. A lot of these systems too have been installed years ago. I was just recently on a trip in Alaska and we were installing some lithium batteries for my brother who has just gone without electricity for decades, I guess you could say. And his neighbors, we checked out a lot of their PV systems and they did have systems that were well over 20 years old pretty regularly in that neighborhood. And there were a lot of parallel connections. There were even a lot of systems that had 12 volts. They had some big cables there. But now, hey, we're in the future. Well, at least compared to 20 years ago. So we can do things more efficiently and cheaper. And that's why I'm seeing a lot more lithium ion batteries being used. Even in Alaska, where the cold temperatures are a problem for lithium ion batteries. But hey, put them in your sleeping bag. But as far as paralleling batteries together, would you call that a combiner box? It's like, I'm sure somebody has, but that's not the official term. You wouldn't call it a battery combiner box and be compliant with the National Electrical Code. But if you said, oh, I got this battery combiner box, somebody would know what you were saying. They're like, oh, that person is paralleling together lots of different batteries. Another thing too is parallel connections with lead acid batteries are to be avoided if possible. It's not like you don't ever do it, but the more parallel connections that you have with a lead acid battery could just lead to more trouble. So parallel connections can lead to different strings of batteries wearing out sooner than the other strings of batteries. So let's say that you had three different strings going to your, as you called it, battery combiner box. And one of those strings of batteries was a little bit looser on the connection and another one had a little bit more corrosion and one of them was connected just perfectly. So it's interesting that that battery string that was connected just perfectly might wear out sooner than those other strings because there's less resistance there. And so it's gonna overuse that string that has less resistance. Aha, 
you don't want to do that. So then there's different creative ways of connecting batteries together so that you connect the positive on more on one side of the battery bank and the negative more on the other side of the battery bank where you have all those different strings. And you just have to be extra careful that you don't use cables that are different lengths and going to different places. So it can get kind of tricky with that. It's not as big of a problem with a lithium ion battery. They're just a little bit less of a chemical soup and a little bit more towards the solid state into the spectrum. And another thing that you sometimes get with these soupy lead acid batteries is you can get what they can call parasitic currents. Even when the battery is just sitting there turned off, you get the different strings reacting with each other a little bit. So that's called a parasitic current. Doesn't sound too good, huh? Sort of like a tapeworm for batteries or a tick with Lyme disease. Ugh. Okay, so just remember, you can parallel your batteries together. And if you live way out in the woods in Alaska, go ahead and call it a battery combiner box for all I care. Hey, they have an inspector that comes out when you build a house. That's a land of freedom and solar power. And they have a lot of wind power out there. And I even saw the coolest thing out there, hydropower, little micro hydro. It was so cool. They just had this little thing that looked sort of like a pump and it made a kilowatt 24 seven. That was really awesome. The only problem the guy has is once in a while it might freeze up if he doesn't keep things flowing when he goes on his winter vacation to the sunny place. That's what they do in Alaska. Aloha. And now on to our next question. And this question is from Karen. Karen wants to know, is community solar better in the city or in suburban areas? So let's talk a little bit about what community solar is. Pretty much what it is, is your community or your area or your building might have some kind of rule where they allow community solar, which is totally awesome if they have that rule. And then that means that you can have ownership or virtual ownership of a PV system that could be somewhere else besides where you are and still get credit, like if you were net metering. So let's say that you live on the bottom story of a building or you're a renter and you live in an apartment building or some sort of condo, or just in some place where it wasn't convenient to put solar on your own roof, then you could do community solar. And so what they'll do is they'll build like a big solar project, perhaps on the other side of town where they had this big open area. And then you get net metering type of credit. So on a sunnier day, you get more credit than a darker day, just like if you had it on your own roof. So pretty cool, huh? That's called community solar. So the question was, is it better to have it in the suburban areas or more conductive to have it in the sub suburbs or right in the heart of the city? So I would say like in the heart of the city, you're going to be more likely to want to have community solar because cities are more dense. So if you thought about Manhattan, where are you going to put solar there? Like all the buildings are super tall. You know, if you live on the 10th story, you might be on the lower stories of a building. So you're just not going to have that roof space. And then once they do have some roof space, it's just a small percentage of that whole building area. And it's probably full of air conditioners and things. So there's not many places to put solar in built up cities, in the urban areas. So therefore, in the suburbs, though, people often have their own houses or they have rooftops. And that's where a lot of people put solar on the rooftops. So I would say community solar is more conductive for the city, but hey, if you have the option for community solar in the suburbs, you might want to take advantage of that too. And let's differentiate too between community solar and community choice aggregation or CCAs. 
So a community choice aggregator is an organization that you will see in some states because some backward states haven't passed a CCA law yet. And so pretty much what it means is it decouples the purchasing of electricity from the utility. So in my neighboring city, they have a CCA called Marin Clean Energy. And people don't have to do it. They can stick with their regular utility, which is called PG&E in that area. That's the biggest utility in the country. But there's many places in PG&E territory where there are CCAs. And so some places like Marin Clean Energy, Silicon Valley Clean Energy, all these different places where the municipality will pass the CCA law and then you're automatically opted in. So that means that you have a choice. You can opt out and go back with the utility. But typically the way that it's set up is you just automatically include people in the CCA. And it's pretty cool too, because always the electricity is cheaper, the electricity is greener, the electricity is cleaner, and the incentives for solar and energy storage are better. The big problem with this is shareholders of private corporations like these big utilities don't get as much profits. Darn it, hate it when that happens. That means people just get better electricity. Darn people. Okay, that's it for Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you tell your friends about it. I hope to tell your grandma what you learned here. And if you want to find out more, you can go to solar, S-E-A-N, that's solarshawn.com.